You are listening to the Enormo cast. I think that Black Diamond has a marketing problem on their hands. Too many cam codes. The C4, the Z4, the C3, the X3, the C3PO, and the R2-D2. Oh, hey, Disney lawyers. We'll scratch those last two. But their problem is your gain, because the reason for all the gobbledygook is that Black Diamond refuses to stop innovating their cams. First, they introduced the ultralight C4s, and 30% lighter equals pounds across the full rack, folks. Which means you don't have to think twice about that glazed energy ring you gobbled while standing in line at 7-Eleven at 4 a.m. on your Alpine start. Then, if multi-sets of ultralights is too rich for your blood, they made a wink and a nod to the cheap dirt bags and redesigned the original C4s 10% lighter. Then, after another espresso or 10, they sat down and combined the C3 and X4 into the better, badder Z4. Finally, sort of as a joke, I think, they burped out the number 7 and number 8 Camelot so the masochist could masochist even harder. Are you keeping up? Well, the only thing to really remember is that the climber engineers at BD can't stop, won't stop making their cams better. So the next time you're plugging gear anywhere, you're set up for yet another best day ever. So go to blackdiamondequipment.com and check out the best protection money can buy. And you know what? It wouldn't hurt you to place a nut once in a while either. Do you like compliments? Compliments are good, right? From the outright, straight-to-your-face statements of praise to the knowing look and slight chin-jut from your favorite bro at the gym, compliments can turn your frown upside down in an instant. And hands down, of all the gear I pedal on the Normacast, the item that receives the most out-of-the-blue compliments are the splitter hats from PeterWGilroy.com. You know, the ones with the titanium plaques and badges. That's right, titanium on a hat. Peter started making these hats a few years ago and has kept the styles coming with designs inspired by the great mountain ranges of the world. So if you're one of those people with a head and who enjoys random praise from friends and strangers alike, go to PeterWGilroy.com and check out the splitter hats and all the wearable art that Peter creates. Even better, receive a discount and help out the Enormacast by entering Enormo at checkout. That's PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed playing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is about 11 o'clock p.m. 
Daylight Savings Time on the 15th of March, 2021. The Ides of March have brought Jim Reynolds to the Enormacast. Lucked into an interview with Jim Reynolds. Some of you know Jim Reynolds from holding the previous speed record on the nose with Brad Gobright before Tommy Caldwell and Alex Honnold beat it in a protracted effort. Some of you may know Jim Reynolds because he free-sold up and down Fitzroy in Patagonia. And some of you may know Jim Reynolds because he was in the film in Real Rock 14 as sort of the comic foil for Tommy and Alex Honnold, which uh, doesn't do Jim Reynolds justice and actually didn't do Brad Gobright justice either. And I actually didn't really like that part of that movie. I thought it was a choice in bad taste, depicting them as unsafe while Tommy Caldwell and Alex Honnold taking 100 footers were somehow the safer pair doing the nose speed record. Yeah, I didn't get it. Love all those guys involved, though. So don't get me wrong, you know, just a small critique. Nevertheless, where were we? Yeah, Jim Reynolds is on the show. So let's look forward to that. And uh, yeah, I'm going on a climbing trip tomorrow for five days. Five-day climbing trip with my lady, Sands, a normal child. Which uh, five days climbing doesn't sound like a big deal to a lot of y'all just hanging out in your vans doing whatever the hell you want. But it is a big deal. Especially climbing with the normal baby's baby mama. Because we don't get to climb together that much because we're handing off the uh, the, the kid. Anyway, looking forward to that. But let's uh, get this thing out the door before we leave. Yeah, it was kind of cool. I lucked into this one because Lauren Delaney Miller, who is on the last episode, after we got done, said, you know who you should interview is my roommate. And I was like, well, who's your roommate? And she said, Jim Reynolds. And I said, oh, the hell yeah. I'll interview Jim Reynolds. So she kind of arranged it. Talked to Jim, talked Jim into doing it. And I always had imagined that Jim would be sort of reclusive and uh, not so talkative. But it turns out that he's pretty damn talkative and pretty excited. And once you kind of get him rolling, man, he does not stop. And I just took the opportunity to kick back and listen to it just like you guys kind of do. You'll find that I didn't, uh, I didn't jump in very often in this one. Just let Jim roll, stream of consciousness, telling stories down in Patagonia in Yosemite. Also, it's kind of interesting because not only does it complement Lauren's interview from last time, those guys running in the same circles, obviously, but it also complements Pete Whitaker's interview from earlier this year because uh, Pete Whitaker rope soloed the free rider in a day, and uh, Jim actually made kind of a hilarious and, in his own words, psychotic attempt to solo the free rider in a day rope solo um and he did actually end up rope soloing it but it took him longer than a day which is a fun story that he tells i feel like this one just fell into my lap which is super cool and i'm glad i got to meet jim across the computer screen these stories made my palms sweat but they also made me a little worried about him sort of a parental way him getting out there and and uh and freaking on-site down soloing things in patagonia Hopefully I'll meet him out there in the uh, the world one day, and I'll just sit him down and see if I can talk some sense into him. No, just kidding. He's inspiring. Glad he's out there doing what he's doing, because, man, he's living free. Living free. Jim Reynolds. The truth is that climbers live their lives off the rocks in approach shoes. Part comfort, part performance, part signaling to that lady across from you on the bus 
that you and the crazy free solo guy are essentially cut from the same cloth. That's right, lady on your way to Target. Don't you know I'm loco? That's why Sportiva has invented the most versatile approach shoe yet, the TX Guide. Sprinkling in DNA from their acclaimed running shoes, brilliant climbing shoes, and the legendary TX line, the TX Guide for women and men can run to the climb, climb the climb, bash down the climb, all in time to climb into your stool on the patio of your local brew pub. So if you want to walk both streets and trails like a golden climbing deity, check out all of Sportiva's approach shoes at sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. seemed like y'all had uh some some pretty similar paths and mm-hmm. one of those things that I, listening to the two of you chat you're you're surprised that you don't know each other yeah it's funny um but you know it's like there is a generational gap and also like you know i'm no longer kind of like the out there everywhere climber so i, I definitely feel it when i'm talking to someone who's sort of in that scene now who's 20 years younger than right, i am you're like wow that stuff's all still going on huh <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny because it's like you know it's definitely one of those things where it's you know things have changed but also like you know there's just new people in the same old roles in a lot of ways too you right know? the, the um, continuum yeah, yeah so it's not not lauren particularly but a lot of people think that they like invented this you know this way of life they've discovered it and like invented it a whole cloth and it's like no, you know, we kind of did the same thing only. And then, you know, the guys yeah. and girls before us, like, kind of did the same thing, you know? Like, yeah. And, no, it's funny you say that because that was my experience getting into the, the whole climbing scene in general was hearing the stories about what happened in the 60s and stuff in the valley and, and the dirt bagging that occurred then and, and thinking that it was long dead and mm-hmm. that I was like the one person who was going to do it again, go, go dirtbag it, you know, live simply and in the woods and like go climbing all the time. And of course, then I showed up to Yosemite Valley and thinking I was the only one doing this and you run into everybody else and, and yeah, you're like, Oh no, it's not dead. It's like full, fully alive. All the yeah. It's funny. You, you, you like wander up to find, Oh, I see that great baby spot over there. And the boulders are like, Oh, nope. Somebody's in there. And then you're oh, like, okay, what about over there? <laughs> oh, no, but somebody's in that one. <laughs> yeah. And Maybe I'll go days, sleep behind that tree. Oh, nope. Somebody's behind that tree. <laughs> right. And then, yeah, these days for sure. I'm kind of in that point where, where you look, you're looking at the younger generations wondering like, who are the young monkeys that are, are kind of filling our spots and mm-hmm. are, are they being replaced? And it's funny cause you, it's hard to see sometimes mm-hmm. you, you get that feeling of, of like oh it was we, we were the last generation and who's down <laughs> there who's who's doing it now but then like you said you just run into people who are in, in that that same role getting started off and epicking on all the little things and but loving every moment of it you know having such a good yeah time completely yeah and it's it's you kind of have to take it's like there's two different stances and i think one of them's really dangerous and the other one's like i think the way and that is that like the you can get all super crusty and think like, uh, we were doing it better and we understood it better. And you know, it was all better when I was like in there or you can just, yeah, be like, Oh, they're out there, you know? And, and yeah, right now they right. only, right now they're epicking on, you know, a 10 a, but, uh, that's only going to last for a couple more months before, you know, <laughs> just like me, they suddenly like kick the door open and, and are off and running. So yeah, it's 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 a better it's a better way, and you're a lot younger than I am, so I'm more familiar with the crust that can build up. But um, yeah, this podcast yeah. has helped me with that, you know. 
I mean, you always hear about the the classic, like, oh, climbing's exploding now, and all these people who have different values are out there now, and, and like you said, kind of the saltiness and the complaining about mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. I feel like that that kind of should inspire you to have that active role of being like, you know, find a couple a couple folks that you can show a, a trick or two, or give them a couple like words of advice or a little, just a little piece of what you've learned along the way, and like, mm-hmm. kind of helps push push the the people in the, the right directions you know i think we've all had someone who's like a mentor to us or i mean these days there's not like a lot of true mentors who are like okay you're coming with me on all these missions but mentorship i feel like these days comes in like a few words or a phrase or just something inspirational that that, that goes on so i feel like that's something honestly i'm doing i'm always you know as i travel around on the east side or down to joshua tree like all the kind of classic spots i'm always kind of keeping my eye out for for someone who I feel like has that, that spirit and that fire and that energy, you know, and uh, help them pass some of the hurdles that, that we've all encountered, you know. It's interesting you say that because I think like, you know, there's people who are either well-known, if you want to call them celebrity climbers or something like that, that people are, are turning to. But I think someone like you, it's, it's uh, important that you, you know, realize that even though you haven't been a self-promoter and, and you're, you're, you know, I think, pretty under the radar within climbing, but that you still have this influence and there are, you know, it's easy to think like, Oh, I'm just this other climber. Nobody knows who I am or I keep to myself, but, um, know that there are these young climbers that are like, Oh, there he is. Like that's, that's Jim Reynolds, you know, or like in the yeah. same with me, like I, I I've always, you know, this podcast has sort of made me more famous than right. my climbing resume ever should have. Right. People um, just recognize, but I'm still voice. like, Oh, they listen <laughs> to me. You know, they're like, I, I need to like, yeah, I need to, you know, not watch what I say, but, you know, just be aware that like I have a little bit of status and, and the things I say can have influence. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You you start to realize your your impact and your role. And, and for me, it's definitely been interesting because like you said, I, I try to think, play it kind of undercover. Most of the times I'm hanging out in the woods, but, right. but then, yeah, definitely in the last like year, year and a half, definitely being in like real rock and stuff, you just have people who recognize you and and random places or just tell you like, wow, I think what you're doing is so cool. Or, uh, you know, obviously being doing the free soloing thing, people are like, that's amazing. And, and, and as you said, you don't have to be like too careful about what you say, but also like, I feel like you got that risk or I personally have that responsibility sometimes to offer some of the counterpoints, you know, because <laughs> yeah, uh, sure, sure. yeah, I mean the free soloing thing. Yeah. It's a little bit tricky, right? It's like, wow, I want to do that when I grow up. You're like, well, let, You're like, let's, yeah. let's, like back, let's roll that back a little bit, you know, like, yeah, fun happens sometimes, you know, right, right. Fear and questioning, like all the choices you've made in your life or the other part, but it's been fun though. I feel like I was always someone who was maybe like afraid of being recognized. Like I wanted to remain nondescript, but it's really cool having that experience where everybody you run into is just nice and your friends. And, you know, I had some people recognize me at Lover's Leap and they're like, ah, oh, is it? is it weird that first thing I said to you is, Oh my gosh, you're that guy. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, I, I'd much prefer that to like, Hey, there's that guy. Right. <laughs> you know? Let's, Let's get, get him out of here. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of, kind of nice. Cause it just does open up the door to conversations. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, I can be a little like, reclusive and sometimes people recognize you. And just yesterday we were in the Boulder field and I got to talk with some people for, you know, a solid half hour, hour about our different experiences in Yosemite and what we're excited about. And, Mm-hmm. how to get in there and do the thing you know because i also feel like even with someone like myself who who pays attention to climbing 
you know, pretty adamantly and I do these things shit to a month and I'm talking all yeah. sorts of people like, um, you know, you did sort of like burst on to my radar even, you know, just what a couple of years ago, uh, yeah. you know, obviously the, the Fitzroy climb and then, yeah, then all of a sudden you popped up in real rock, which I, I, I'd like to talk about both of those things when we get into them sort of organically. I listened to um, a recent interview that you did, an, another podcast interview uh, that you sent me, which was awesome because it, it did fill in these gaps. And a lot of times I walk into these things, you know, I joke that I don't do any research, but, but the reason yeah. I, I often don't is because I actually did, you know, for my whole, you know, sort of like climbing career, I pay attention. I, you know, I, I, I didn't have to research when I interviewed Peter Croft because I was like steeped in what Peter Croft did. Uh, but yeah. with you, it is interesting because I, it's not like I can go out there and, you know, find a whole bunch of stuff about you. You've been sort of, um, you know, just keeping yourself and you're, you're a climber. And I think a little bit of celebrity that's come to you is probably new and not of your doing, if you will. Um, but one thing you did mention in that, in that interview was, and we just talked about it a second ago, is, is about finding mentors, you know, as a young climber in this day and age. And, you yeah, yeah. you lucked into a partnership with a guy named David Gailey that seemed to just fit the bill at the time um, when when you you walked into that. So can you tell me yeah. a little bit about that um, as a, a preview of of like partnerships that you had through, throughout your early climbing career? Right. So I was living in San Luis Obispo on the central coast of California and working at a mountain shop. I was like a ski tech. And so I would fit people for skis and get them all, all kitted up for the mountain, which was nowhere close, but they'd rent the stuff for cheap and then go on their weekend trip. And uh, yeah, one day this guy came in and I was getting him fitted for skis and kind of moved on to talking about skis, mountains, mountain climbing, mountaineering. And at some point I asked him like, oh, if you like mountaineering, are you interested in rock climbing as well? And I just saw his face lit up, light up and he talked to me about like, oh yeah, I went on this Knowles course and I've got like a couple a single rack of cams up to number one. I didn't know what that really meant at the time, but it sounded like he had some of the gear and I didn't. And, uh, you know, it was, it was also at that time that I was trying to get into climbing, but I hadn't been able to find anyone to show me how. And it, it seemed like one of those sports where you want to know what you're doing. There was another guy in the mountain shop who kept telling me he'd, he'd take me out and take me out, but he'd, he'd like, oh, no, not this weekend, not this weekend. So eventually I just went onto the online forums and learned how to do some top rope soloing with like a funny little two rope system, one side having backup knots and the other side I would have like a gree gree on, you know, which obviously doesn't self feed very nicely. But like that was what I was doing just to try to get my hands on the stone at all. Mm -hmm. um, but when I met Dave and in, in this, the, the mountain shop there and instantly it was like, let's go out, let's go to Bishop's Peak, which is honestly right in the center of town there. He was in high school and I was in college. I think we were both kind of getting to our, I was in junior college. And so we were both getting to our end of our terms there. And I think we both had a little like free time and, you know, also the attitude of not really wanting to be in school anymore. Like we were at the, the mm -hmm. tail end of it, you know, so looking forward to, to moving on. And uh, we would just go out like every day to Bishop's Peak and start climbing and, you know, working as a team just, just to learn everything. Um, I remember going and like taking our first trad falls together which were like practiced falls you know you place the gear and you like climb to touch your waist and you're like okay you got me but he's like yeah i got you okay here goes you got me it's like yeah you said that already you know <laughs> um i even remember i think like one of those first falls was on a hex just because i didn't I, of course at the time know that those were a little obsolete 
set <laughs> Well, it held, right? <laughs> yeah, it held. Are you here to tell the tale? Yeah. Perfect hex placement, I would. <laughs> nice. <you know. laughs> that, it's funny that, that like I've I've talked to other people who who went out and took practice falls, and then obviously if you're in the uh, you know nowadays in a gym setting, like you know you take a usually take a bunch of falls in there, you know, before yeah. maybe heading outside. But like in my, I have no recollection, and I don't think I ever purposely like took a fall practice yeah. or anything else like i just climbed and climbed yeah. and climbed and climbed until it freaking happened until it happened yeah in hindsight, and it was it like so like terrifying <laughs> you know? in hindsight it seems kind of like a bad idea you know we we're on trad gear in some like right. chossy central california choss pile you know just like okay here go you know low angle probably like five right. seven you know not big falls obviously but yeah but, and, uh, and a hex that you'd, you'd learn to place from like a old greasy copy of uh advanced rock craft or something oh, like. yeah something like that <laughs> yeah but yeah uh, i mean it's funny because it's just like yeah the the trad gear thing actually is not i don't think that usual either of like okay i'm gonna purposely go out there and, and fall on this stuff because i've always said like you know the the curve is is that you place so much of it and you clean so much of it yeah. before you ever fall on it then Hopefully yeah. by the time you fall on it, you've placed a good one, but, um, right. Yeah. What well, I mean, you yeah, gotta he, use what you gotta use. Right. Yeah. Partially. I think I was fortunate. Like he's gone on to become a mechanical engineer and, okay. and I also kind of, I feel like have that, that mind that can, you know, solve like the big wall problems and the, you know, just, just understanding some, some rigging and stuff like that. So I, I feel like we both had a concept of like what mm-hmm. a ga- mm-hmm. good cam placement would look like, even though we hadn't done a lot of them. So that helped helped keep us kind of safe in the early days. There was like we we had this rough framework of like what we knew we had to do to not get ourselves killed, and mm-hmm. then pretty much anything inside of that was fair game. You know, those attitudes are important, and how people approach it, I think, is you know, there's obviously terrible things that can happen to anybody when they're learning the sort of thrill seeker approach. Like I'm gonna learn how to rock climb because it's like this adrenaline thing. I, I feel like that's like the most dangerous approach, you know, those folks and they don't sort of last long in the sport. Yeah. It's but a the analytic approach sport. is important. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, exactly. it's like very thoughtful and slow and calculated. And I have like, at times I had to contemplate like, are we just adrenaline junkies? You know, cause mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there'd be times you'd be like, well, no, you can't, you're not going to have like an adrenaline spike for like a 15 hour day of speed climbing. So you're like, sure. well, but, but maybe like, because we're such adrenaline junkies, like, Speed climbing for 15 hours is the only way you can be on that adrenaline, you know, adrenaline for 15 hours. Yeah, like hours. a true junkie analogy. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. gotta just, you just gotta like go for the long haul or until else you, you don't just feel crash. anything anymore. Can't yeah. do it anymore. Yeah, and I don't know if that's true, but I guess it's a perspective. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm such a pedestrian climber now, not, not necessarily in terms of grades, but in terms of like uh, what, I, what I approach in terms of risk. I can't even think of the last time I was climbing and had that true, like, you know, adrenaline wash. Um, because frankly, uh-huh. I don't like it. Like, I, I yeah, mean, something's, you know, the, the, the true one, <laughs> the one where you're like, uh, afterwards and like, yeah. you know, like kind of like blacking out a little bit, like those kind are, I just don't like them. Like, so yeah. I definitely know I'm not that person. <laughs> yeah. I remember hearing Peter Croft say something about when, when he would do his free solos, if he ever felt pumped at any point in time, he would be upset at himself, like frustrated. Right. It was kind of like a mark of failure to mm-hmm. to even come anywhere close to that zone. The guy's still alive. Oh yeah, like yeah, after a, still... a, a lifetime of free soloing, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, still doing it. There's definitely, yeah. I've got a lot of these heroes and you look at some of them who've passed away, you know, like Dean Potter and Sean Leary mm-hmm. and stuff. And then you look at somebody else who was kind of like in the mix the whole time, you know, like Timmy O'Neill, who's still, mm-hmm. still doing it and still really successful in ways. And it is interesting how that starts to change your perspective of you're like, oh, yeah, it's 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 cool to do kind of like the the big and bold stuff, but then also to like know how to stay, how to keep yourself with such a margin that you can really stay within that line and keep doing it for mm-hmm. a while, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I I mean there's a lot of luck, you know, there's a lot of luck involved, I think. Yeah. And Life you know, and, and yeah, and those guys like got through to a point where they had a per, both of them have had a pretty conscious like okay, you know, that it's not totally behind me, but I always think of like a, I don't know, it's like a dynamo or like a, there seems to be this winding up where a group of people oftentimes just keep going harder and harder. And there's this like thing where the energy feeds off of each other. And it's like, yeah, you know, and from someone look outside looking in, you're just like, whoa, this is kind of like a, a, you know, a force of nature that I don't know where this is headed, you know? And a lot of people, I think a lot of those folks like Timmy and, and Peter just, you know, they, they maybe either was never affected by it. I think Timmy was to a certain extent having yeah, yeah. talked to him, but then, then just had a moment where they're like, okay, wait, 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 this train yeah. is like barreling and I got to step off for a minute, you know, or right. slow it down for just a second. And, but I know what you're saying in that, like, it's kind of this monkey see monkey do thing. And then sure. I, th- I think you, you, the phrase you used that, that I heard was your reference group, you know? And mm-hmm. so obviously when you're in a place like Yosemite Valley or, or Patagonia, like El Sheltan, it's it's almost even worse, you know, where you're just the you're surrounded by all the people who are some of the best climbers in the world, or at least the most motivated climbers in the world, all these people doing big things. And and when, like you said, there's kind of that everybody's getting success. It seems like it's just like out there for the taking. And the only reason like why you're not succeeding is is maybe because you're not like putting yourself out there enough. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, those moments happen where all of a sudden it bites back and you realize like, oh, actually just because we've as a group been experiencing all the success, maybe like there is a place like pull back. There's this, this awesome moment uh, that a friend of mine keeps bringing up where he's, he's talking about a uh, Ron Kauk at, at, I think the Bridwell Memorial and, uh, and Ron Kauk comes out and he's talking about Alex's free solo free rider and, and saying like, like that, what he did was incredible. We can all say that that free solo ascent of El Cap was amazing. But now, like, maybe we should check ourselves as a community and step back and say that, like, that's a pretty good, you know, like, no one needs to one up that sort of a thing, right? which I thought were some good words, you know, um, and, and uh, I'm, I'm a super different soloist than, than Alex, for sure. And, and mm-hmm. I've had people in my life be like, oh, are you trying to like one up Alex Hondel? And I was like, no way. That seems like a good way to quick way to die, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, I liked Ron's Well, it, you like, know, let's take a step back as a community yeah. it's funny because there's so much like legend and mythology that comes out of yosemite and still still continues to do and and yeah you know, one of those things is that you know it's like everybody's here you know to climb for themselves and like to be in nature and like i just like to you know and that that's both things are true that is very true but it's also true that it's a soup it's can be and and i think most people get caught up in a pretty competitive environment in there and it's not like yeah hard not it's to. not like okay you know you're yelling at each other across your tent cabins but it's just rolling in people's minds like you know today i'm gonna go harder and 
And I'm going to be one of those people that plays in this realm with these guys, you know, talking about your reference group. And so, and, and I think that's totally true. Like if you were coming up there when like someone like Sean Leary was there and you're that young climber and, you know, you're watching what he does. And this is, this is how you be great is to follow in these guys' footsteps, you know, and that's that cycle we talked about of, of younger generations, yeah. like replacing the older generations. But it's kind of wild um, yeah. what goes yeah. on there, like in this underlying subtle level you know right because it's all it's it's so compact and there is kind of you're 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 in the meadow with everybody else or you're in camp Mm -hmm. four with everybody else and i remember like from my early days like hearing hearing the belgians you know like nico and sean like singing songs from across the way and being like oh who are those guys you know that sort of thing i also think that yeah kind of the flip side of that is there is a lot of space in Yosemite strangely mm-hmm. enough and especially as you start to get out into the high sierra and it is cool i think to see how you know how some of that space does lend to like creativity and i think they're like i really appreciate when i see people who are just they're thinking about like what's their own personal mission or epic thing that they're going to do because as as opposed to like, you know, if you're just all, all sport climbing, it's easy to say like, okay, the next hard thing for me to do is either like this next hard grade or link up these like couple routes, you know, but in a place like Yosemite, like I, I feel like it's cool sometimes the, the monkey spirit of people being like, okay, we're going to like run down Tanaya Canyon and then we're going to like solo snake dike and then base jump off the top and then run and go get ice cream before we, you know, or, or whatever. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's cool. Cause that, that can be fun. Cause then it's not just like one upsmanship. It's just like, right. Oh, I appreciated that cool thing that you did. And it inspires me to like do my own other thing. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, sometimes I feel like the more I pay attention to climbing, like what's going on in the big climbing world, the more mm-hmm. almost like, like I think pressure you do feel to be in that, that like Oh, I gotta like climb harder and and try bigger things or bolder things or faster things or mm-hmm. you know whatever. But I feel like it's it's nice to like get my space and disconnect from that and and I can find that in a place like Yosemite and just kind of let the you know your individuality kind of tell you what's right for you rather than than being overwhelmed by that community that's that's really strong, really fierce there, you know? Yeah, it's very fierce. And I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of reminds me or makes me think there's like a fine line between inspiration and competition. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, like, you know, you just mentioned that, like being inspired to do, you know, my own thing or, or whatever. And it's like I said, I mean, I can't even really game it out in my head what the kind of difference is because they are related in a way, um, yeah. you know, um, in, in that sense of inspiration versus like, I'm going to go bigger. Well, I'm inspired to go bigger. Well, yeah. you know, it's like kind of this wild mix that I never really thought about until we just started talking about it. Actually. Something I've been keen into recently that I, th- I think is, is fascinating is, is people always talk about wanting to do the first, whatever, whether it's the first, you know, free ascent or the first ascent or the first free solo ascent or the fastest ascent. And I think sometimes that gets, chalked up to be about competition and trying to do better than one another but i think there's this other feeling that's like because no one's done it and it's in it's like it's potentially impossible you know and and so that like edge of exploration of like asking like is this possible for like humanity at all you know is kind of Mm -hmm. like a question Mm -hmm. you can start to ask when you're you're doing these first ascents you know 
or first whatevers. And I, I don't know. I kind of like prefer that perspective because it makes sure. it seem more like we're all on a team, like, you know, mm-hmm. all working towards kind of the edges, the fringes of, of what our sport is, you know, or, or what we're doing. Obviously there's a complexity to this sport. Uh, you know, that word, it yeah. doesn't even, doesn't even do it justice, but, and, and that's what's sports. appealing and we can only game it out and each person approaches it individually. Um, which actually I want to ask you, um, to change the subject just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a second ago, you know, about, you know, people like, are you going to try to one up Honnold? And you're like, no, that's, he's, you know, that, that's like a, a death wish. Um, but so how do you approach free soloing and how do you think your, your sort of attitudes, maybe your own or individual? Well, I think in general, free soloing is pretty self-selective. And like you said, as an individual thing, it's one of those things that once you start doing, you, you very quickly find out what, what your relationship to free soloing is going to be, whether that's like, oh my gosh, that was terrifying. I never want to do that again. Or like, oh, that was actually really cool. And I really appreciate that headspace. And I think with that in mind, like for me, it started off as that thing. Like I was just a kid of the woods, you know, I was like a backpacker and a hiker and just like an adventurer is how I always described myself early on. So I got into free soloing just from that natural movement through terrain and starting to encounter things that were technical. And then as I started to learn how to rock climb, that just obviously gave me the skills that opened up that door and that freedom to be like, cool, I can like go wherever I want and and do whatever I want within reason, you know, of course, as long as I'm careful. But I think that like when I was younger, I just appreciated spending time alone in the mountains and the woods anyways. And so it was just like an obvious progression once I got into rock climbing to start going out alone and seeing what I could do by myself. Like, as I mentioned earlier, I also, um, you know, started off like top rope soloing. It was another like, mm-hmm. oh, Jim's like alone doing his own thing. Um, I've also like, in addition to some of the free solo ascents, I've, I've done like 11, 12 days on LCAP solo. And just more recently, I actually finally freed the free rider for my first time ever and ended up doing it solo. There's like a, that, that theme of, of, you know, like I love my people and I, I love spending time with people, but I really appreciate that time that I get to spend like by myself in the mountains. It's, you know, I read something recently that basically says you, he, the person that you are when you're alone is totally different than the person you'll be as soon as you interact with a single other person. You'll never be mm-hmm. that same person that you are when you're alone. And I think that like spending time alone, uh, lots of time alone has like really helped me kind of gain clarity on life and like what, what, what it is I want and what my path is. Yeah. But then back to the, I guess the more like climbing thought of what free soloing is. Yeah. It feels like a blessing and a curse sometimes because I both get to do these things that are incredible that sometimes feel like cheating, you know, (laughs) like you, you pass parties that started the East Padres like before dawn and you're like oh i just started up like half an hour ago after soloing these other couple formations and i'm gonna like go back down and drink beers around the campfire with my friends while you guys will still probably be trying to work out the descent you know um and so to that extent it just seems like oh this is like the greatest thing you know i get to have so much fun and move around and like experience all these things and and you know but then there's there's the the backside of it where it's kind of like because i don't know I'm, i'm i really love life and I love like the people in my life and um, I'm really excited about exploring all sorts of different venues. You know, like there's many rock, many mountains in this world, not all of rock and snow sort of a thing. <laughs> like, uh, 
and and I don't want to jeopardize those things, right? So like, there's, I'm. It's always in the back of my mind what the consequences of free soloing are. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not the type to be like, okay, when I go for a free solo, you just put those things out of your mind and you you execute. It's like for me, it's the opposite. Like I want to recognize think about what the consequences are and think about who it is that you know is is on like who who, who my decisions are connected to you know because i think it's nice to like get that feeling of individuality and soloness but also when you do that stuff you realize how connected you are to other people it's a little bit of mm. a paradox like you can't you don't free solo anything like you're always you're so attached to the rest of the world you know well, let me ask you about the the Fitzroy scent again. It was actually the probably the first time I'd ever heard your name, and yeah. I was like, "Oh, who's who's this guy that just like right because did that?" Because when I did the nose with Brad, it was like, "Oh, Brad Gobright and some Brad, Brad Gobright and some dude jugging broke the speed record on the nose." <laughs> totally, yeah, totally. That's very true. Actually, you sort of nailed it in a lot of ways, you know. And then the movie, the the film though, came out after Fitzroy, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, there was yeah. the lag time in between. And, right, but nevertheless, so the, the Fitzroy thing is, I, I think the thing that's really interesting about that, and, and you know, Andrew and I talked about it on the run out, just kind of sprayed about our, our you know, being astounded by it. But the, the big, I think, key thing is the, is the fact that you onsided it is a pretty interesting uh, kind of angle in terms of free soloing. I think a lot of times we don't necessarily expect you know, especially in that terrain and the kind of route finding that you ran into. So can you talk about the sort of decision, you know, leading up to wanting to do that route? And, and, you know, I don't know if it was a, the idea of onsiding was spontaneous or if it was some sort of thing of like, I just want to have that kind of experience, or maybe I just don't have time to go up and climb it with somebody first, or how did it come about that you were like, okay, I'm just going to go up and bang this thing out? Yeah. So, uh, it, it was my first season in Patagonia. And I had come down and knew a couple of people who had been there several seasons before me and, and was trying to learn after them and, and take under their wing and, and get some, some tutelage because I didn't really know too much about alpine climbing. And so I went out a couple of times with different folks and had a great learning experience, like great learning experiences every time. But after one particular time going out, which was, um, yeah. We went out and there's actually this huge rescue that occurred out there that you've probably heard of separately. Um, there's like two big rescues, one off Cerro Torre, and then we pulled off this other one on Rafael Juarez. But that's obviously a different story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's mm-hmm. this, uh, there was this point where, you know, because the mountains, the climbs are so far back there with your, when you're with a partner, it was this feeling of like, you got to have your everything so together Otherwise you're letting this other person down. Like you got to be able to hike fast and you got to be able to take your breaks efficiently and you got to be able to keep your bag packed well. And, and because you're a team and, and each person depends on each other, there's less freedom, you know, there's less ability to just like run around. And so my first time, my second time into the Torre Valley, I would get to these spots or see these boulders or see these crazy little holes of in in the glacier of water and just be like oh could we go swimming in that and, and your partner's like no we can't stop to go swimming or no we can't stop to do this boulder problem like are you kidding like we're going to climb point snow or or you know some huge mountain like 
what are you thinking? <laughs> um, so basically, and uh, they have a point. <laughs> yeah, right. They have a great point for sure. What are you thinking? Um, <laughs> but like, uh, so I was there. I had I had bought a friend had told me if you go to Patagonia, go for as long as you possibly can. So I bought a three month ticket, round trip ticket, and so I was really committed. And I felt like in that first month, I just didn't know where I was or or what I was supposed to do in that place. And then by the second month, I was like, okay, I start to understand the place a little bit, but I don't understand my place in that place. Um, and so this, all the the big solos I did there kind of occurred in the third month where I, I was, I guess, in some ways, like searching for my personal interaction with the mountains there. Like a, a friend that, Tad McRae, who, who had taken me out in, uh, on my first mission out there, who was like a, he, he guides some big mountains and um, it's just like an all around great guy, but took me out. And I remember telling him, I was like, I don't know, man, this place is kind of crazy. Like it's cool and it's beautiful, but I like the feeling of being light and unencumbered and free and dancing through the mountains. And this is just like scary. And we feel like we're chained to being cold and suffering, you know, and just like barely getting out alive. And he told me, he said, just wait, you'll find out how to interact with this place and, and then it'll become your playground. And so that third month that I was there was when I decided, I was like, I think I'm going to go into the Torrey Valley alone and I'm going to take all these different topos of all the mountains that are around, right? Because when you're in the Torrey Valley, you got the Fitz group on one side and then the Torrey group on the other side. And the Fitz group is a lot more rock roots, whereas the other side is a little more ice. And so I took mainly topos for the Fitz side and I went back in there and I took my sweet time and I took little siestas by the rivers on the way out. And I climbed all sorts of great boulder problems, you know, just like was loving it, you know, headphones in, just like dancing around in the sunshine back there and camping out where I wanted to and like a little hole that, you know, just fit one person and really felt like I was starting to understand the rhythm of the mountains out there, kind of the ebb and the flow and like how, when and how the wind blows, which is obviously a pretty radical thing out there. But I had this day. Right. So I hiked into the Torrey Valley and then I had a full day just to like rest and be in the Torrey Valley in Boulder. And during that day, there was uh, this route that I felt like was looking at me. It was like all day. It was like the one route that was like shining. And I had the topo for it. And uh, even though I had some plans to do other routes, I, was like, I have to go do the, the Philo West on Rafael Juarez, uh, the West Ridge. Uh, you know, once again, ridges, we know they're iconic. And this one was just golden granite reflecting the sunshine on this like most perfect of days so i made that idea like okay i'm gonna go over there and i'm gonna i'm gonna start early in the morning and i'm gonna just like start up the the lowest sit start of this ridge um you know like most people when they do this route they like do this whole approach like cut into the side of it but um i basically started climbing this thing straight out of the base camp there's an extra like thousand feet to link into the route and um yeah i was just like to have the climbing shoes on and to have a chalk bag and a little backpack with, you know, maybe a rope to bail if I needed to and some cams. Like I felt like, I think it's funny talking about margin while talking about free soloing. Cause it seems like a activity where there is no room for mistake or failure. And, and certainly that's like really true in a lot of ways, but the way that I was approaching this, this first big solo in the range was I'm going to try to free solo it. But if I have to like plug in a cam and clip and direct and shake out, or if I have to put in a cam and wrap and just get out of here because this is a horrible idea, like, you know, I want to, I want to stay alive what it takes, but 
if the climbing above me seems reasonable, like I'm going to keep doing what I know how to do. And yeah, that was amazing. Once again, little backpack, just moving over terrain, the crux pitch being this like 10 C deep fingers and hands pitch, like vertical, steep, really locker. And you could see it from a mile away. You're like, that's the crux pitch right there. And I got up there and I had this little six mil cord and I put my backpack down and flaked out the rope and tied a little bow, like the six mil around my waist with a little bowline and clipped the other side in the backpack. And then all of a sudden was, you know, thousands of feet above the ground in Patagonia, like all alone with nothing on me, but the chalk bag and this tiny little shoestring cord that just tagged my stuff up later. And, and suddenly I felt like I was finding that, you know, it felt so perfect. So right. So like the thing I had trained to be able to do and, and, uh, got to the top of the pitch and was able to just like pull up my backpack and put it back on and go right back into mountain scrambling. At some point there's a couple of head wall pitches. And, and I just, as I looked at the head wall pitches, I was like, not only are these the kind of things that I can climb, but I think I can down climb them too. So I left, they're like the hardest pitches, the six B pitches or whatever, whatever that means. <laughs> um, and so I left my bag and I left my whole kit that I could use to bail and just committed to those upper head wall pitches. And then, down climbed them and grabbed my bag and then once again down climbed an entire another route that was more like the 10a range instead of the, the 10c that i'd come up but i got back to my base camp at the end of the day and i was like cool i had that extra margin that extra stuff to bail in case i wanted to but i felt so comfortable in that terrain and it felt like i mean there's obviously a lot more factors out there but it felt like another beautiful day in the high sierra <laughs> so after that, I was like, that was the most incredible experience I could have ever asked for. I'm totally satisfied. I can just go home now. But I had some more days of good weather and plenty of food. So instead of hiking out the next day, I was decided I was just going to stay and enjoy the sunshine, do some stretching. There was actually some other friends in the Torre Valley that were going to go climbing that day on uh, St. Exuberi, one of the other big formations right by Rafael Juarez and I decided I was going to just like stay at camp and it ended up being super windy that day like I was really lucky I wasn't on the mountain um the other parties that were up there ended up all kind of bailing you know same thing I climbed Rafael Juarez and then on this day where I'm resting a party that tried to climb Rafael Juarez had to bail on those summit pitches because it was so windy that they just could not you know rope and all like everything they couldn't get to the summit and then so that same day, there's another group of our friends climbing on St. Exuberi who also have to bail because it's too windy. Um, meanwhile, I'm just like at camp eating, eating snacks and watching people's tents get blown away and trying to like pick up the, the wreckage and like put their stuff back together. So when they get back to camp, they won't be all bummed that all their stuff got blown away. Same thing. I'm in that, that idea that I'm going to bail, that I'm going to leave from the mountains. And I, I had my fun and that was enough. I go to sleep that night and somehow like I wake up super early the next morning, just so fired up, you know, uh, th this is like maybe a reoccurring theme for me is that a lot of these, the bigger solos that I do kind of come from this, this like feeling of inspiration that is, it's just like such a feeling like I, like this overwhelming inspiration. Like I just want to go now so much. And I spent obviously a lot of time ahead of time thinking about, whether or not it was acceptable for me to solo in the mountains. And I had made that decision that I think it is. So then waking up that morning and feeling that fire, I was like, cool, I've already thought about like the pros and cons and whether or not this is right for me. 
And now waking up feeling this fired up, like I'm going now. So I just like grabbed my little kit and just start like charging up in the mountains. And, you know, they're huge. So it takes a long time to get up there. But I got up to the base of Chiara de Luna, which is this one of the ultra classics down there that uh, Brett Harrington and Marc-Andre Leclerc had had famously free soloed before me. And knowing that they had done it and being friends of theirs, it, it kind of felt like that vicarious thing, like a, not really like an on-site solo, but s- sometimes feels a little bit more like a flash solo when someone that, that you trust is basically like, oh yeah, that thing, you could free solo that for sure. It's really secure. <laughs> I mean, not that anyone told me that, but like I said, having relationships with those people and, and uh, hearing about them doing it, being like, okay, like I think maybe it'd be okay for me too. And then this solo was a little different for me. I actually left pretty much everything behind. I left even my approach shoes behind. I took just the Muras, mm-hmm. the chalk bag, like a liter of water clipped to my side, maybe like a puffy jacket and some sunscreen because you don't want to be caught without that stuff up there. And and obviously these mountains have to be repelled. So I climbed knowing that I would, if if there was any mis- any problems, anything that I encountered that was too much, my only margin, my only like, backup was to down climb <laughs> um but that's like a part of how i made that decision i actually walked to the base with with the full kit in case i wanted to bring those couple of cams and the six mil tagline but when i looked up at the first pitch which is honestly one of the crux pitches supposed to be 511 and i'm like not really 511 free selling is normally out of my pay grade a little bit but when i looked at it i just saw a thing that I knew I could climb <laughs> and down climb. I was like, Oh, I could for sure get down past that. So I can get up this and I could get way up the route only to find out that it's too scary. And then down, I'll climb all the way to here. And even though it's like rated as the crux pitch, I'll still be able to get, get down. But, but yeah, a huge epic adventure. Eventually I got to the top and then you're on the summit and you're like, woo, kind of celebrating, but it's not over yet. Sure. Down climbing. Well, I mean, that, that's an interesting thing yeah, because yeah. it's like, that's, that's like a, you know, that's like a piece of important uh, alpine climbing knowledge always. Oh, yeah. You're never done when you're on the summit. But, uh-huh. you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like that's you were actually had done the easier part at that point. I mean, most people, yeah, you right. know, their stomachs would drop out at the thought of down climbing anything, even with a rope on. But, yeah, so it's like I think you were yeah. in, in most people's minds, you you hadn't even gotten past the halfway point in terms of commitment. Right. Yeah. For sure, because it, it's funny too. You start finding weird things that, like for example, topos are drawn for people coming from the bottom, not from the top. So when all of a sudden you're <laughs> trying to read a topo from the top, it's pretty hard to find things. Huh. I remember on the way down, uh, the way I went down is going down this route called the Italiana into the Kearney Harrington, and on that upper part, the Italiana. I remember you'd see like, okay, maybe it goes that way, maybe it goes that way, but I think it's this way, even though it looks really steep, and you like crawl up to the edge and stick your head like peer over the edge to stick your to look down and you're like oh there's a hand crack right there like perfect like yes we found it and and then you kind of shuffle on over and turn scoot around and stick your feet down first and kind of like you can't really see your feet so you're trying to like just jam them in the crack until you can feel them and then you can finally like scoot off the ledge and then once you're in like that more traditional vertical climbing stance i think that that's a position we feel more familiar with, but just that initial like slumping over the ledge to get into the hand crack is like really exciting moments for sure. But, but then it's, yeah, a, yeah. It's no, hand my crack. hands actually <laughs> just got my hands to start sweating. So um, <laughs> congratulations because I mean, look, most people 
the the stepping off on a rappel version of that is like you know good enough for for us in terms of like getting getting your little little bit of buzz going so i can only imagine like sort of bellying down over some edge till your feet find purchase sounds fucking terrifying right at the top of the world this is like 2500 (laughs) feet up saint exuberi which is yeah 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 just above i mean hold on though let me stop here for a second because just you know if you could and i don't it may be difficult to do but you know describe your your state of mind you know when you're doing that like like if you can go back there like you know, is there a nervousness that you have to control or are you like, oh, I'm good. You know, this is going to be fine. It's only this great. I mean, what, what is the calculation if there is one as you do something like that? Or are you, you know, classically just in the moment this has to get done? So I've had a lot of different soloing experiences, some right. not so positive, but these ones are specifically some of the best soloing right. experiences I've ever had. Like the most positive, everything went well according to plan. So definitely on Exuberi, I was a lot of the time I was just so excited to be up there. Like I just felt really full and alive. And even when I was in some of the most exposed, crazy places, it'd be like, oh, this is kind of crazy. Like I wonder what's next. Yeah, a lot of that was just a very positive, excited headspace. The flip side of it, and this this is a, a little piece that I adapted from that I learned from Alex Honnold was uh, he's talking about free soloing on the crucifix in Yosemite and, and just this idea of like rushing to try to get to the top almost Mm -hmm. where suddenly you realize, you you know, you could just walk around the backside to get to the top if that was your goal. Um, And, and kind of this mentality of like, do look down, like, remember that like, this is the place that you wanted to be in and, and take a moment to appreciate that. Which mm-hmm. is kind of crazy when you're on this like vertical, you know, over, it feels like you're hanging over the world and you're going to stop and recognize, look down, realize that you're ropeless, realize that you don't have a harness on and like see the ground below you. So it's, it's two parts. One, right? Like you, there's that classic anxious human brain, which is, is constantly like, Ooh, I've got one more like 511 pitch and who knows how that's going to go. And it's really hard for me to enjoy this romper terrain. When I'm thinking about how scary that 511 crack is going to be, you know, 2000 feet up the wall. And then you get past that crux and you're thinking like, okay, cool. Now I just have like a couple of 510 pitches to down climb on the Kearney Harrington. Hopefully those aren't too scary. Um, So it's definitely like a bit of a battle to remain present and to enjoy the the moment that you're in and not just think about what's next. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah. I think that goes in two ways. Like one, sometimes you're thinking about um, what comes next in terms of like technical climbing and, and how much more you have to do before you feel safe and you know that you're safe again and that you've, you've accomplished, you've survived this experience. And then because we're human again too, there's also this like part of your brain that, that starts thinking about like how people are going to think about the experience that you're having, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing. That's like one of the, that's one of those things that you just got to actively work to, to take out of, to, to not spend your time thinking about, you know, if you're thinking all about like, Oh, when I get back to Fresco bar, I'm going to tell people that I free soloed, uh, St. Exuberi and down climbed it. And they're going to think, you know, and it's like, I think to have the awareness and recognize that because we are human to have feelings like that are natural. And then to mm-hmm. be like, cool, I had that feeling. I recognize it. I accepted that I had it. And then I'm like going to put that behind me 
and I'm going to like continue moving forward and just like, yeah, once again, I'm going to actually take this moment to take a couple breaths and look down and appreciate where I am in this wild, wild world. Well, I imagine uh, in Patagonia, there's also the one, you know, there's got to be a few brain cells going like, okay, what's next with the weather? You know, like, oh yeah, what's that? what are those cirrus clouds? Oh, is there, you know, like, is there a breeze? Was that a breeze I just felt? You know, like, yeah, it's funny kind of a thing. I mean, I I haven't climbed there, so I'm only, you know, that's conjecture from all the all the writing that I've read about it. But uh, you know, it's not Yosemite. You know, it's not like. Yeah, oh, it's per- perfectly nice at 7 a.m. So it's very likely to be perfectly nice at 9 yeah. p.m. tonight, too, you know. Well, and you start off I, I, this trip into the Torrey Valley was five days for me. Mm-hmm. And you start off with a the forecast for the day that you're hiking in. You take like the last forecast you can possibly get. You take all your screenshots or whatever. And then you take that out with you. But then all of a sudden you're four days in and you know that each one of those four days, that weather forecast has changed. <laughs> right it blew up so yeah <laughs> so yeah while you're like well the forecast i'm looking at says that thursday is going to be sunny maybe it's not like maybe that whole storm that was supposed to come in on friday just decided to move in a day early and now as you yeah once again as you're standing on top of saint exuberi without a rope uh, without mm-hmm. any ways of surviving a storm or getting off this mountain except for just being able to free solo down climb yeah it's definitely a pretty intimidating looming threat but um once but you again, weren't done you try you try to leave a little bit of margin yeah. in there you know you're not trying right. to climb the thing right before the storm comes in you're trying to get off of it well before the storm comes in so even if the storm comes in a little early hopefully hopefully you're out of there <laughs> how long did that like just guessing maybe you don't have it or maybe you did time it how long did it just take from ground to ground I feel, or like down to down wherever you felt like you were off i get the two you know, the West Ridge of Raphael mm-hmm. and the other, the Chiara de Luna confused us exactly when I got down for both of them. Mm-hmm. I want to say like both of them, I finished in the daylight mm-hmm. um, okay. and started a, day. a little yeah. bit before the sun came up. Yeah. Right. Actually on the, on the West Ridge, I was like fully down to base camp. Like maybe it was like 11 hours or something like that. Okay. Um, and Chiara de Luna took me a little bit longer and I think I was like right. coming Coming back into camp, like as it was getting dark, <laughs> lots of pitches, lots of terrain, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously once again, I'm used to doing the Yosemite stuff where El Cap's like five minutes from the road or, you know, sure. it's maybe like a mile to get to things, but you feel you're so to get into the Torrey Valley, it feels like whatever, 12 miles, 15 miles, depending mm-hmm. on how far back in there you go. And then you're at the base of the death slabs, you know, you've got another 3000 feet of crazy Talisy loose rock to climb up and then you get to the base and you get to start doing your thing i think that by doing those solos it it taught me like one kind of what my capabilities were in the range and, and how how i could look at a guidebook and interpret what i could do with what i was looking at you know i'd taken these topos i've been like okay this is what i'm seeing on the topo this is what i'm looking at on the rock like this is what i think my abilities are i'm gonna go for it and see how that works out and and have these potential ways to back out if it's too much. And once again, both of those were some of the most incredible soloing experiences I've had in my life. Maybe even more so than Fitzroy in some ways, uh, the climbing was actually probably better, you know, and, and harder in some places too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Fitzroy is kind of like five ten the, the the way I did it, but the Chiara de Luna is, is five eleven for sure. Just a little shorter, right. you know, but yeah, so I got back when I finally got out of the Torrey Valley 
that was one of those things. I topped out Chiara de Luna and then I got down and then I still just was like fired up and was like, I'm going to hike all the way out of the Torrey Valley right now, which was that whatever, 15 miles from where I was at least, you know? Um, and so I hiked like through the night. There were some friends who were supposed to be leaving the next day. And I really just like, you know, was like, couldn't sleep with the like energy that was in me. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to just like hike out of here and go say goodbye to them before they take off in the morning back to their respective countries. And it's a wild navigational challenge to get out of the Torrey Valley in the darkness. <laughs> it's just like, uh, right. This dry glacier at points, it feels like it's got these like maelstroms in it. Like these, these spots of the earth that are like sucking downwards. And if you're not careful, you're just going to get like swallowed by the earth and you know loose rocks are falling all over the place but they're kind of on ice so you also might slip and it's just like total chaos and madness there and i'm trying to get out and at one point i remember getting to this place and being like the ground's sparkling like there's these little lights on the ground these little like blue lights <laughs> it was it was tripping me out for sure until suddenly i realized i was like oh those are stars which means that I'm at the, the the lake and the problem with being at the lake is that you're, you're supposed to go way high and around this lake. So I just dropped into like the worst possible spot and it's like 2am in the darkness after I've been up for hours after soloing exuberi and then just like having to like claw my way out from the, the lake bed back up into where hopefully there's a trail and, you know, eventually you like stumble back into shelter cove uh, just like, all beat up and destroyed and but immediately the hospitality of the locals there your friends you know just like the the even the landscape you're back into like hospitable wilderness again and and to get back and to start to like talking to people and and you know i didn't get back and be like yo everybody guess what i did you know i'm always the type i mean honestly i went through a part of my soloing career where my rule was you don't tell anybody about this stuff because as soon as you start telling people about it, then the next solo you're going to be on, you're going to be th- thinking about what it's like to tell people about it. Sure. So for a while I had like a, do not speak about your free solo experiences. And and so that, that lingers, you know, I still have little, little bits of that. These days, my perspective has changed to just, you know, they're, they're shared stories that should be shared. You know, not everyone's gonna, right. Not everyone's gonna, and definitely not everyone should like try to go do these things. But hopefully they'll get to hear my stories and that's, that's fun too. And they get to like, yeah, no, no, it's good that you're talking about it. <laughs> had I been like, let's talk about your free song. You've been like, no, you've been like, oh, okay, well, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> Great then? 10 minute podcast. Thanks. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> no, there's more to talk about than the free soloing. I'm actually joking. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, you know, in a lot of ways, like this whole conversation we've been having for the last few minutes, isn't exactly about the free soloing per se. I mean, it's like, like I said, there's, it's such a complex thing and it's such a complex motivation and and people go at it so differently in so many ways that, um, it's, you know, we're, we've gone way beyond that. Yeah. It's, that's why it's fun to talk about. Cause like you said, I think that when you see the news headlines or you see like a photo of someone free soloing, like there's a very, you're getting a very external perspective and it's fun to get to Mm -hmm. talk about to, to just be like, no, there's like so much other things going on inside, you know? Um, sure, sure. Yeah, like just to be grim for a little minute, like I've spent a lot of years on the search and rescue team and I got to see like, you know, some of the gnarly stuff. And uh, in some ways, I think that turns a lot of people off from climbing in general 
And especially you could see how that might turn you away from free soloing or any sort of like dangerous style of climbing. For me, I always really appreciated getting kind of the firsthand experience of like what the consequences are. You know, it's like when I go up there in the mountains, like those, those thoughts are in my head. Like that's, that's with me, you know? And it's like kind of a burden that you have to carry, but it also, it's like, mm-hmm. uh, like I feel like I have to, you know, like I have to be thinking about those, those people that I've seen that, that were dead, you know, and, and realize that like, that like I'm putting myself in a place where like that, that could happen to me if I don't like do it right. Like, for example, I, I've had dreams to climb the free rider for a really long time. Like most of us, there <laughs> are a lot of, a lot of, a lot of folks are trying to go for the free rider. I know. And I had just kind of like a really rigid style. I wanted to do it in, I wanted to do it in a, in a day all free and ideally with like both people freeing if not every pitch like at least all the crux pitches so kind of like free climbing but mainly like free climbing while simul climbing with these like high ideals it basically made it so that the more times we tried it and realized oh it's so hard and like trying to find the like corners that we can cut to make it uh possible and and not to say that i'm like trying to cut corners but i'm you know to climb quickly, I don't place a lot of gear on easy terrain. And uh, just the year before, we had dealt with like the the double fatality with Tim and Jason falling off the free blast, and suddenly we we're mm-hmm. on the free blast again. Myself and another friend who who was also on that that double recovery, um, and he's watching me run it out. And the whole time he's thinking like, "Are you not? Do you not remember like what happened? Do you not remember like being here in this very place, like dealing with the consequences of?" of this you know and so we got to heart ledges and and kind of had a you know pretty like emotional moment in which once again he was asking those things like are you not thinking about those guys and i was Mm -hmm. saying the opposite like no i'm thinking about those guys every single moment of this and yeah maybe that like makes it feel like climbing is like you could paint that as like oh climbing's tainted in a way but Mm -hmm. in in some ways like i accept carrying that burden to go do these things like I, i have to be real about them if i want to keep doing them and to that extent too it's totally okay if i decide someday like i don't want to do it like oh maybe we should just wall out the free rider and not have to run out the pitches so much and actually bring in a number six with us you know right yeah i would suggest that <laughs> yeah the number six i mean not yeah i, I, I sent <laughs> i sent i sent without the six <laughs> nice <laughs> good for you uh, i guess i guess that was good it was solid <laughs> honestly nice. this last time the monster i was like maybe it's because i did a bunch of like blue collar work this summer like a bunch of like heavy manual labor sure. but i went back right. to the monster off with this this year and uh you know for this this ascent that i was i was trying to do mm-hmm. and so i'm i've never like i'm not the biggest rope soloist but i'm in that thing with the the Grigri on my waist and just like no number six, just being like, well, you know, there are bolts a certain ways up. So if I get to the bolts and I'm not feeling it, like there is once again, this, this out. And the nice thing about mm-hmm. if you ever have to down climb off with cracks is it's mainly just like sliding. You know? mm. But I got in that You're thing. Arresting your slide every few Yeah, few, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got in that thing and just like, it felt so good. I was like, wow, it's cool. never felt so good. This is, this is going to work for sure. <laughs> So you were you you rope soloed the free rider free on a Greek uh solo setup? Yeah. Um Oh god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it would have been nice to like use a silent partner or whatever. Um Well, you know, I just talked to Pete uh, yeah. like a month ago about that and like 
Yeah, the idea of you doing it on on a um on a Grieger is tip of the hat to you, sir. Is that is that what he used? Didn't he use a Grieger? No, too? I, what, no, no, he used the silent partner. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> mistake. <laughs> um, right. So oh, Pete is ahead. an incredibly Sorry, strong that. climber, you know, and so definitely mm-hmm. like getting ready for this mission, knowing that he was the only person who had ever soloed the free rider. Free, yeah, not helpful. Probably rope solo, free climb the free <laughs> yeah. rider in a day. Yeah. You know, I was like, uh oh, like I definitely don't have what what he's got in him. And and in his experience, I I think like what I've heard is is the enduro corners were for sure like he's like yeah, I just had to like pay out a bunch of slack and punch it. And right. I, I haven't really worked the enduro corners out much. Uh, and not being that nearly that strong of a climber, it's basically like I feel like I that's where I'm gonna fail. Like maybe I'll get to that point and fail. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I was I was kitted to do like the in a day. Like I thought I was going to try to free climb it, r- rope soloing. All the words are hard. <laughs> rope solo, free climb yeah. it in a day. But I thought the edge that maybe I had that that would help me, like you know, keep up with Pete or like you know have a chance to do this thing that like only this other incredibly strong rock climber had done is like. Like I'm a really good rigger and I know all these like crazy tactics, you know, so I'm going to go up there and I'm going to do, you know, certain pitches, maybe I'll fully free solo certain pitches. I'll do the classic, you know, belay roped solo belay other pitches. I'm going to do some upside down repelling where you thread the anchors and then the two strands go up with you and you clip only fixed gear and lever beaners. And then when you get to the top point, you unclip one of those strands and then you can pull the whole rope up with you. Um, tactics right and so i had all these ideas yeah, yeah. for tactics and i started off on the free blast at like 4 p.m there was all these parties that had just bailed because it was really windy and they were like we can't hear each other it's heinous up there and i was like oh well, great thing about solo climbing is and i just like put in the headphones and all of a sudden it kind of right. seems like the wind stops you know you don't have to worry about communication with your partner over that stuff and and i felt like i was climbing really well um but trying to use these these tactics, I would just do these things that were like kind of scary, like more scary than it needed to be. Not like overtly dangerous, but more scary than it needed to be only to not like have too much rope drag to pull my upside down repel and have to like repel down anyways. And I'm like, oh, I could have just belayed myself like normal and, and, sure. and it would have been fine. Right. Like basically if I just had stuck to a tactic and done it, then I would have been all right. But I was going hard and got to you know, got all the way the 10 or 12 pitches up to heart ledges pretty fast. You know, I thought I was doing good, but totally exhausted. Like I had spent, I had just been sprinting for like three hours and, and was totally bonking and, uh, climbed one more pitch, this, this pitch off heart ledges. And this is kind of where my like shenanigans tactics, this is like my low moment on the route because the, the pitch off heart is like one little boulder problem, one sort of slabby boulder problem. And I remembered it as being this pitch that has two bolts on it. And so I was going to do this upside down repelling thing where I was clipped into the first bolt to repel off of and then threaded the second bolt and then just like from the second bolt, do the crux move and keep going and then be able to pull my rope and never have to repel back down to get my stuff uh, or, or to undo the anchor. But when I got on this pitch, suddenly I realized as I'm like, I'm soloing to get even to that, this quote unquote first bolt and uh free soloing like ropeless just like with all my stuff and then i get to this where i think this first bolt's gonna be and i'm like oh it's just a single bolt and the only thing to thread through before it is this ancient ring piton that's probably from the first descent of the salivate you know it's probably straight from that era and so all of a sudden i'm threaded through just this single ring piton 
and then clipped into this bolt, but kind of feeling like if the ring piton blows, it's going to pull the loop through this bolt and I'm going to fall all the way to the ground. So instead I clip like one strand into it and then I've got this weird death triangle going on and that's weird too. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I'm really screwing this up. So I end up taking my daisy chain, which, you know, daisy chains have those sewn loops in them. So those loops blow at like 300 pounds or something like that. They're not full strength, whereas the whole sling is full strength. So I clipped directly into this bolt, having several of those sewn loops left so that if I fell, it was basically going to act like a screamer and I was going to fall directly onto that bolt. (laughs) And and so, yeah, I give it one go and I do the beta totally wrong and I fall and just like, yeah, this little, yeah, I fall on the heart move and this one loop of my daisy changes like poof, blasts out. And I'm all of a sudden I've like only got like three more loops left. And uh, there's this guy down on heart that later recounts. He's like, yeah, I just heard you, you, you whining up there going, I just don't have that many loops left. And, uh, <laughs> and luckily I was like able to do it on like the next go, but that was just that point. Like I get to the, the ledge that's after the pitch and I'm just like, that was not pretty. Like you got to get your shit together. And, and I was basically like, I'm going to bail. Like, I'm so tired. I was sitting on this ledge and I just started like eating all my snacks, like as fast as I could, not, not on purpose, but I couldn't control the, like the ravenous post bonk sort of recovery attempt. And, uh, I did have this micro little hall bag with me and in the bottom of it was a sleeping bag. And like the moment, you know how it is. I grabbed the sleeping bag and I pulled it out. And the moment the sleeping bag was in my hand, I was like, oh, it's over so much for my one day ascent of the free rider. And then mm-hmm. I'm in the sleeping bag. No, and I'm not going to, not going to get out, not going to move till morning. And then when morning finally comes, I'm still planning on bailing, but I have some more food and some more water. And I'm at least going to spend some of the day up on the mountain. Like I'm alone up on the ledge and I'm like, oh, this will be nice. So I decide, okay, I'm going to go one, one more pitch. Cause the ledge I'm on lung ledge is pretty terrible, but hollow flake ledge is awesome. So I get my stuff together and I, climb to hollow flake ledge and I, I do the whole like down climb and do the whole pitch free and get my stuff up there. And then I just like tuck into this shadowy little corner on hollow flake ledge and, and just like re- reclude into this, you know, hide from the sun. Cause I don't have that much water or anything like that. And meanwhile, all the other parties that are down there start, start catching up to me and like passing me. And they're just like, what are you, what are you doing here? And I'm like, no, I'm just hanging out. I'm I'm taking the day. I'm like working on my cuticles, you know, I like got the salve out and I'm like pushing my cuticles back and making them look all beautiful. You're like a little troll. Yeah. Like a little a, troll well, inside of yeah, yeah, the hollow flake troll, exactly. Um Yeah, a, a couple of friends pass, some other parties. And uh one of Jordan Cannon and uh, Emily Harrington were doing some of their like preparatory laps to get up for the the Golden Gate and uh mm-hmm. Yeah, so they pass by, and I remember same thing. Like, they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just hanging out. I was like, but I'm kind of psyched. I might climb a couple more pitches. And and uh, Emily gives me one of those Vogue tabs. She's like, here's here, take this Vogue tab. I'm like, what is this? She's like, oh, natural energy supplement enhancement or whatever. And she's like, I swear by them. They're amazing. And so she she hands me the one, and I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll 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 keep this, you know. But it sort of felt like one of those things. that's like the someone gives you that thing that you're like, well, I'm not going to like take this so that I can repel, you know, I'm going to like take this little like caffeine pill. And like, if I'm going to keep going up 
And like, like that first party that had passed me were some friends and they're like, yeah, come up to the alcove this evening. Like Vivi with us up there. We'll like, we'll hang out. We'll tell stories. It'll be great. So after literally like seven hours of sitting on hollow flake ledge, like being the, the, the little ledge troll in the corner and having all these other parties pass by me, the sun starts to go down and I'm not the kind of climber who likes to climb in the heat. So as soon as it starts to get cool again, I start getting psyched again. And I start climbing after these parties that are, you know, now they're in the monster off with, and, and I'm on hollow flake ledge. So that's probably, I don't know, six or seven pitches away. And uh, most times when you encounter soloists on El Cap, they're really slow. You just expect them to be a total junk show. But, you know, I have some different tactics. So I like start, start gaining on these parties. You know, <laughs> like I start like catching up to them and I catch them like the one party they're basically like we're not going to do the the monster we're just going to jug these other lines and get out of here and and i was like great because i'm doing the mo- i want to do the monster right now <laughs> and like, there's like this hour the you know as the sun is setting it's kind of like the the breeze picks up for a bit and so the conditions are really good but then as soon as the, the sun fully goes down it gets kind of muggy again so at the time i get to the monster off with it's like this kind of golden hour of not in the sun the wind is blowing but it's not that like still air yet and um as i was describing the, the monster a little bit before uh there's there's this like down climb to get into it and i start doing the down climb and in my head i'm like oh i'm doing this so wrong oh like this is not the beta every move that you're doing is so wrong and then i look left and i was like oh there's the monster off with right there and you can just like reach across and grab it and pull over and then in the monster off with and as i was saying before it felt you know, I don't want to say it's easy because I know the monster isn't easy, but it was like felt easy for me that time. You know? <laughs> um, and then I get up to the alcove with with my friends who are up there and they're all it's probably 8 p.m. They're packing up for the night and they're, they're like in their sleeping bags already. And so we hang out and chat for a bit. And I uh, take this little Vogue tab that Emily gave me. And I'm like, guys, I say what? I'm going to go do the Teflon corner right now. <laughs> uh, which is like the, one of the crux pitches of the route, you know, whether you do the Teflon or the Boulder problem. And it's still like several pitches above the, where we were at the alcoves and it's, it's dark now, but I just started, you know, going for it. I just was psyched and start lay back in this endless, like 200 foot long, awkward, wide pitch and do another pitch. And then before I know it, I'm at like base of the Teflon corner and it's like almost midnight and the, the near full moon is rising and I'm just like up there alone on the head wall, just amped and just like throw, you know, in the full palm stem. And then all this, like I managed to do the Teflon, you know, on lead. And that was kind of that moment where this, this switch flipped in my head from right. I, I thought I was bailing for the longest time. I was like, I'm going down, I'm bailing, I'm bailing. Well, I'll just do one more pitch. I'll just do one more pitch. I'll just do one more pitch. And then getting the alcove and being like, I'm going to go do the Teflon. It's obviously, I was getting pretty psyched again there. It's obviously not just bailing at that point. But then I set the Teflon and was like, oh my goodness, like this could actually go. Like I could do this whole thing, but it's midnight and I know that I'm going to have to get to the corners before they go into the sun the next day. Because if it's hot, there's no way I can climb them. So I sleep for like two hours on some little tiny nondescript lead. Wake up and, and <laughs> probably take like a couple of ibuprofen because at the, this point my body's like in some pain. and. uh race up to the enduro corners and i ended up doing those pitches on top rope because as i had said earlier there's just no way knowing like who pete is i was like there's no way i'm gonna just more or less on site lead free climb the enduro corners because of how little i know about 
the like the beta for them. Mm-hmm. So I ate up them as fast as I can. I link them both in one pitch. I fix the rope at the top. I wrap back down and I put just like a micro tracking setup on like a little top rope solo. And then I'm racing the sunlight. It's like on the wall beside me, but because it's a corner and there's a little overlap, like my hands and feet are still in the shade. And I just barely like screaming and all like by the skin of my teeth, get to the top of the Enduro. And then the, the traverse, the round table traverse out to the left is in full sun now. And I fall like a bunch of times. And because it's a traverse, I have to like come all the way back. But on the time I finally am going for it, I end up, there's these like Wacos and I end up shoving one of my legs in the Wacos that my hands are also on. So <laughs> I've got, right, and I'm rope soloing and, and I somehow did it wrong. So I've got the rope running like behind my leg out to the right and my leg shoved in this crack that's like not very secure and i'm like flexing every part of my body just to try to stay in it meanwhile i'm more or less bat hanging off the the top of the cap just by this, you know shaking out every little ounce of chalk i have left in my in my chalk bag to just barely by the skin of my teeth get around the corner to round table ledge where i find a gallon of water like a really old nasty looking gallon of water but um you know, keep in mind, like I tried to go up there for like an in a day ascent. And now this is like day, you know, two and a half. I don't know. It's hard to keep the time straight right. when you're like climbing it, right. it during midnight and you're starting at 4 p.m. or whatever. But but I find this gallon of water and knowing that the pitches are like I've sent all the hardest pitches up to there. I kind of like got a little emotional, like, oh, my gosh, like I'm actually going to going to do it. <laughs> but every pitch from there to the top was like a fight tooth and nail for sure. You know, just like. I remember on like one of the last five, 10 pitches, the rope was pigtailing of the twists were jamming in my Grigri. And so I'm climbing this like ring locks crack 0.75s. And, and I'm like, meanwhile, trying to rip slack out of my Grigri with my teeth while I'm holding onto these like not very secure jams. And yeah, uh, some guys that I passed on, on the route at some point before the Enduro corners. So my other friends ran into them and I'm like, yeah, we met your friend, Jim. He was, he was cool. He was really psyched, maybe somewhat insane <laughs> or, or psychotic. I think was their exact words. Psychotic. somewhat psychotic. You know, I thought that was fair because I think they like met me in a very particular <laughs> mode. <laughs> you know? Right. Like maybe you wouldn't think I was that psychotic if you met me on the ground, but it's like, you guys saw me like in the middle of like one of those really, really extreme moments in life, you know? So uh, this is actually good. This is a good, I think rope soloing deterrent. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I get a lot of folks asking me about it. I also rope soloed El Cap as an aid climber uh, a fair few times. And yeah, yeah. And, cool. um, and I usually kind That's of smart. like, well, look, you know, <laughs> It's, it's just, it's, it's not something you do cause it's awesome. You sort of do it because it's going to achieve the goals you have. Yeah. And the fact that, cause I'm thinking of that 0.75 crack at the end of the Salte, it's like, it's, it should be truly one of like your glorious <laughs> climbing career moments where you're just like, you're on that, the very tippy top of the head wall and you're like putting in these good jams and the rock is perfect and yeah and you're crushing after all the things you've done it's just like this it's really like a crowning pitch you know just for pure pleasure and there you are just like absolutely fucking it up and (laughs) just like oh no oh no no (laughs) this should be amazing but this goddamn rope won't go through my gregory and i'm like getting pumped and i'm gonna fall off and you know so anyway so yeah yeah that's the the, that's the reality ad is right yeah 
It's just yeah, like right. the same totally. thing. People get all the, yeah. the summit photos of Fitzroy or right. whatever, and then all of a sudden you summit Fitzroy and it's like totally overcast and you can't see anything. You know, yeah, sure. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, those last couple of pitches were just I mean, literally I would find these little micro ledges and try to fall asleep for like as long as I could and then wake up at some point and like take some ibuprofen and like wait another half hour and then try to do another pitch. And when I finally did the last five ten pitch, which was once again like tooth and nail, then the last pitch I was able to just like put the rope away and, and solo to the top in kind of once again the full moonlight and found a mm-hmm. nice little bivy and then hiked down the next day and went back to the, the SAR site and kind of returned all the gear I had borrowed for the mission and it's cool because it was actually the only time I climbed El Cap last year which normally it's mm-hmm. like something I do. I try to climb El Cap a bunch because I love climbing El Cap, but I hadn't even laid a hand on El Cap for the whole season mm-hmm. until this ascent. And, um, you know, I mean, the free rider is something I've been working on for lots and lots of years. I, I think that I'm much more naturally like a good speed climber or like, I'm really good at climbing five ten. you know? Uh, right. but as soon as we start getting into five twelve, it's, it's, or anything harder, it's a different story. You know, I think one other, other thing that, that, uh, maybe I, I kind of got lost on was I think we were, you were asking me about the, the, the Fitzroy and the, mm-hmm. the on-siding of the Fitzroy and like how, how that came to be. And I told you this stories, right. Of doing uh Raphael and exuberi and then finally coming back out of the mountains. And one thing I just wanted to touch on there that I think is kind of funny about the story of Fitzroy is like, really, I just wanted to climb Fitzroy like anybody else. I wanted some way of getting up Fitzroy and there was a couple of things against me. And, and one was that I couldn't find a good partner. Like I had good partners, but they had all climbed Fitzroy before. So none of them wanted to put in all their eggs in that basket. And then the other thing was that there were these weather windows coming up, but they were all really short. So if I were to do it in the normal style of going out there for yeah, the normal style, it, it would take a lot longer. But after having just had these successes on the Torrey Valley side, like maybe I could go in like Fitzroy's technically easier than these other pitches and I just proved myself that I can down climb and I've also got this little kit dialed in for if I do need to bail and and um yeah so I went out to Fitzroy and I, I actually tried it twice the first time I got like hard to even know how many pitches probably like 10 pitches up in this place called Las Placas the slabs the great slabs and uh I had forgotten my my vest which seems like a kind of unimportant thing to forget, but because the layering systems can be so important out there, it's like I could either try to climb in my long sleeve and be too cold or climb in my puffy and totally destroy it. And I really just needed the vest. <laughs> I don't know. It was like this weird, I probably bailed for a lot of other reasons, partially because I had just gotten out of the Torrey Valley and you need a lot of rest from that stuff. But I turned around and bailed and, and like down climbed most of the way. And then did actually repel one like five ten pitch there. Uh, went back to town, saw my roommate, my mentor Tad, and sort of just shaking my head. I was like, you know, you'd be proud of me. I bailed because it wasn't right, and I I bailed knowing in my heart that maybe I'd never get a chance to do this again, and that's okay with me. I accept that. And he laughed and goes, "Well, you should check the weather." <laughs> and there's this another perfect epic window, like just as long as I need it to try again. And so I went out the second time and luckily this time I remembered my, my vest, <laughs> all the things I needed and got out there and, and got on Fitzroy and it was maybe even in better condition than it had been before. And I started, started moving and the topo for that thing is hilarious. Like if you look at the topo for the nose, it takes up two pages of a guidebook 
if you look at the topo for the Alphonsius on Fitzroy, it's like in, in the margins. <laughs> Mainly it's like these squiggly lines that say like 300 meters, 510, you know? Right. <laughs> like it comes in like three chunks or four chunks. And, and so you get out there and, and like you really have no idea where you're going. And so, yeah, it, the, that mountain terrain is just so much on siding in general. I think like it makes the way that, that I solo, if I were to contrast it to like the solo of the free rider, that's all about attaining perfection and having something so dialed that, you know, you can do it perfectly. And for something like Fitzroy, I knew I didn't have to do it perfectly. Like there were mistakes that I could make, but obviously there were certain mistakes that I for sure couldn't make. So it was more about just doing it excellently, like this pursuit of excellence, you know, I remember at some point kind of nearing the top of, of Fitzroy, I had seen these old, like, uh, I think it's Alex Huber who's, who's soloing, uh, somewhere in the, in the Alps. And he's like free soloing, wearing a helmet. And I always thought that video clip was so strange. I was like, why would you free solo with a helmet? And, and then there I am on the, the last couple hundred meters of Fitzroy. And it's just like raining ice chunks down at me. Cause the, the sun's out more than I'd maybe expected it to be. And it's just raining ice down. I'm like, Oh, I wish I had brought my helmet. Like, you know, it seems so weird to not bring a harness and to bring a helmet. But suddenly I was just like, oh no, this is like my great mistake. And then that leather, I, leather pants, leather pants and a helmet. So leather, leather pants. And pre- helmet. I think that's standard, standard equipment for the Ubers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you're doing stuff like that, maybe brown leather pants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was, that was a cool one. Like get to the top of and same thing. Like, okay, it's, it's three thirteen in the afternoon and we're halfway there. And uh, that one, right. the, the storm was like, I was kind of pretty close up against the storm. It's supposed to be the next day. So um, mm-hmm. that's still plenty of time, but that's no time to stop and bivy. And so down climbing, I went off route a couple of times. It took quite a bit longer to down climb than up climb. I think it took me six hours to climb up and nine hours to climb down, something like that, roughly. And so it got kind of real towards the end when I got back to the slabs and originally right the slabs they have these cracks that go up them that you don't really use um, and those cracks are were full of ice not a big deal because you're climbing on the slabs around the ice but while i had been on the upper part of the head wall that hot midday sun had been melting the ice out of the cracks and so they'd been seeping down over the slab so now the slab as i returned to it it it's probably like 9 p.m you know in the dark uh, i returned to this slab and now it's soaking wet which is manageable, but the longer it takes me, the more that water is going to turn back into ice. And I, there's no way I'm like going to down climb these like frozen slabs. So that was definitely like the, one of the parts that got most exciting. Cause you're just looking down below you and you see like one or two holds, you know, down, down there below your feet somewhere and you step down and you step down and then you look around and you see like two more holds and you step down that way. And then there's a couple more holds, but like the whole time you're going down, you just feel like you're dropping further into the abyss. Like there is no clear path back to the ground. You're just like climbing into endless darkness sort of a thing. But then there's like this one last boulder problem that sets you up in this position where you can sort of jump. And I like jumped and like stuck this little ledge and then like, it's like, yeah, we're like to the bottom of the slabs and kept kind of racing through these dark corridors to get back to the base at, at midnight full moon this night it was the the solstice no the equinox the fall equinox and the full moon 
And I just like finished soloing Fitzroy and this storm is coming in. And so it's coming across the mountains and these dark storm clouds are blasting into Fitzroy, hitting the Afanasiyev, which is the knife-like ridge that I had just climbed up. And these clouds are hitting this knife ridge and, and splitting in two and arcing around Fitzroy and curling on the backside and, you know, kind of increasing in their ferocity as that storm is approaching more and more. And I'm like, okay, it'd be nice to sleep at the base of the route, but I got to get out of here. So starting at midnight, I'm like heading back across this glacier, which is like a real glacier and has real crevasses, but um, all the crevasses were exposed. It was strange, like in the time that I'd climbed the route, the glacier changed conditions a lot to the point where I could see, I felt like every single crevasse that there was. And originally being someone who didn't understand much about glaciers and crevasses and the Alpine train, it was um, amazing to feel like I had the the blueprint, like the schematic to what is a glacier. I was like, oh, this is how they form. They're like rivers and they flow and they crack and they... But yeah, just like dancing in the full moonlight across this open glacier field, trying to like slowly get out of there back to civilization and got up and over the last pass into this cool little cave and, and disappeared into the cave just as the storm was coming in and let some, some of it pass before I like hiked the rest of the way out. And it's really cool. You know, Sean Villanueva just did that. The moonwalk traverse his solo ascent of it. And that was so amazing for me to hear about because I've been on that side where when I feel like I'm soloing, it's not just me. It's like I'm the result of all the people who have, you know, supported me throughout my life, you know. And it was cool, Sean, doing his traverse because I felt like I was suddenly on the other side where it's like I felt like I got to do it with him a little bit, you know, like I I feel like I get to share that experience and I'm like, cool. I didn't have to like put myself out there in the mountains, but the thing he talks about, he like brought his little tin flute with him and played it on every summit. And same thing. He talks about how he came out the far side and spent like an extra day sitting in a, in a cave. And it's kind of cool to just think like, Oh, I wonder if that was the same cave. (laughs) Right. I wrote an article for the Alpinist about the, about Fitzroy that I called the rhythm of the mountains. And that, that title is because I think in, especially in a place like that, but maybe just in general, it's really important to tap into the rhythm to like not be on your schedule or what you want to do, but to be able to like listen to the natural world around you and to, to be like, what can I do? What will you let me do? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, I don't know, huge respect for Sean. Cause I feel like not only did he find the rhythm of the mountains, but he also maybe found what key they're in. So I wanted to ask you about your partnership with uh, Brad Gobright, someone I knew fairly well, at least in his beginning years. He was on the show, and uh, you know, you're you're sort of partnered with him in our in our uh, psyche because of the real rock and and doing the the speed ascent on the nose together. So you know, let me ask you like what worked um, in terms of your partnership with him. Some ways I see you guys as similar climbers. Some some ways, you know, I see is very different. You know, you've got the Orange County suburban kid, and versus like the the guy who wants to go disappear into the woods. I mean, th- those are some differences I see. But you definitely have a kind of a go forward attitude that seem to complement one, one another. Obviously, but yeah, what what do you think like worked with the two of you guys to get that nose thing done, and and any of the other climbing that you did together? Yeah, I think you you pointed out well that. Brad and I shared some things, but we're also very different people. 
uh, mm-hmm. in a way. I think some of the things that we shared is our background in, in the free solo climbing. And I think one of the things that helped us is we both really trusted each other, knowing that as individuals, we had curated that space of the do not fall zone and how to keep it together. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it. We we had originally met in Squamish, but then our our time together, like we weren't super close friends. I'd say before we started climbing on El Cap in the nose and that sort of thing, just really close in the community. Like I I had been climbing with like different partners and had never climbed the nose in under ten hours and had been asked by like a friend like, well, what do you think you could climb it in if you had the like the perfect partner or whatever. And kind of timidly, I was like, well, I don't know, like maybe like seven hours or something. And, and and so I was sort of looking for that person that I felt like could enable me to do that quicker ascent of the mountain. And eventually someone recommended like, well, what about Brad? And I knew Brad is a climber with a lot more experience than me, someone who climbed a lot harder. And, and sometimes mm-hmm. I get a little intimidated with climbing with better climbers than me. But Brad was just such an approachable character. He was such like a disarming you know, like no matter how much fame he would ever have, like he never felt like a famous person or uh, you felt like you could just talk to him or even be weird in him in front of him. And that would be OK, too. So as soon as I met Brad and started talking to him, he just seemed like someone I could get along with. And we went up to climb the nose. And I think our first time up there, we climbed it in six and a half hours, which he also hadn't climbed it in under 10 hours. So I think both of us were like, wow, that's wildly different experience than than what we've had before and we just kind of agreed like let's see what we can do if we just put a couple more laps in you know obviously the idea of a speed record is so far away at that point (laughs) but it's just fun to right for me for a long time on the nose i was just chasing a feeling more than like a record like i just wanted that Mm -hmm. feeling of being in those upper 510 laybacks being like why am i so pumped oh it's because of the stove legs 2000 feet below us we haven't stopped climbing since then but yeah as brad and i kept climbing together we just were i guess in such a similar place and for me personally i i can't really speak too much about why he trusted me so much but for him i always felt like anything that i climbed like if i struggled on it a little bit like brad would be able to free climb it not struggling so like if I could do it, Brad could do it casually. So that helped a lot because, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the stuff we did, I led. And when you're leading simul climbing, you just have to trust that your follower isn't going to fall. So I could lead and being like a very analytical climber, things like conserving the gear and like where exactly to play stuff and like how to set your follower up for success as they're going to do their lower outs or pendulum swings or whatever, like that kind of stuff. My mind could work out really well. Meanwhile, Brad in the back, I could just know that if I decide to run it out for a hundred feet, even if Brad's on like five ten or five eleven terrain below me, I'm actually not that worried about him falling because he just right. Brad just didn't let go. He's really, really good at not letting go. And since I've like mm-hmm. looked at some, you know, I, I have other partners that I climb with, and it's it's hard to find someone that I have that same trust of. Like I've got another friend who I just climbed Fitzroy with this year which was also an amazing experience, but, but like, sometimes he just comes off the rock, you know, like randomly. And it's like, as much as we're like best (laughs) friends and maybe even, even like a stronger team than, than, than Brad and I were in terms of like our actual teamwork capability, like, because I can't necessarily 
trust him to always hold on. Like, you know, maybe we'll climb the nose in four hours or something like that, you know? And then, um, you know, you just spend so much time with a person like topping out the mountain and then we'd hike down and we'd always talk about like what we could have done better. And you're like, if what would another lap be like? But then all the, also those conversations just devolve or evolve into just talking about life. And yeah, I remember some pretty funny mornings, just like getting, getting in the car with Brad and we're, we're getting into his car and I've got like a little speaker playing music and I get into the car and he's like listening to the same music. He's like, oh, like this song? Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. And then I think, too, the other thing that really worked for our partnership is that, like, we're both just like monkeys, you know, like valley monkeys. Like, we're just mm-hmm. both of us have spent a lot of years just like not spending a lot of money and just traveling to the, the places that we want to be. And, and like, at some point, because I wasn't working for the search and rescue team, like, he and I were both in the same talus field in different little rock caves and we had never really knew where each other's spots were minus that in the morning at 4 a.m when we'd wake up to go to the nose i'd see kind of in the distance somewhere else in the talus field like another headlamp heading down towards the parking lot (laughs) And and i felt like it was it was part of that that spirit that also helped us climb together that that uh same love and passion for yeah i think we just shared a lot of like the reasons we climbed were similar. The one thing I think that makes us really different that I think back about Brad and I always kind of wonder like, how did you do this? Is that I don't think Brad had much fear in his life. Like I don't think he was really afraid mm-hmm. of anything. It seemed like his biggest negative emotion was annoyance. Like he never got angry. If he ever got sad, he didn't really like show it that much. Like it all just came right. across as like being annoyed, you know, at stuff. Like if he was if he was upset, he'd be like, "Oh, the tourists," and you know, or like, oh, "I couldn't find a parking spot," you know. But you never hear him like truly upset, and you never hear him like truly scared. Uh, which I think it's just like amazing to have been able to live your whole life without fear. Because uh, I feel like I, I am very different in that way, where I choose not to live my life by fear. But I feel like I have a lot of fear in life and it's almost because of that fear that I have to like aggressively choose to pursue the things that I love in life. Otherwise that fear would take over. And yeah, I always kind of like look back to his example. And sometimes when I'm like in those, those deeper pits of like despair and just like fearing life and the world and like my choices, I just like think back about Brad and I'm like, how did you, how how are you so unconcerned, like (laughs) nonplussed with all this stuff? Yeah. So I talked to um, your your current roommate, I don't think much longer, but um, yeah. Lauren not too long ago. And, uh, you know, one thing I observed with her was how, you know, quickly she sort of got this lifetime of true climbing community experience, including, yeah. uh, you know, the dark sides of it, including um, we had talked about Quinn's accident and her time on SAR and other people that were, you know, lost in the community in that time. Um, and, and, you know, you worked on SAR and I've already brought up, you know, dealing with death in a lot of ways. And, and I don't know who else, you know, close to you or associated with you that you've lost in terms of climbing partners, but, you know, was it a shock or was it, was it difficult to deal with, um, Brad, or did you have, I don't know, coping mechanisms already in your life as a climber when people we know pass yeah. uh, in the sport? It, 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 I mean, definitely difficult to deal with. Like Brad is for sure the person that I've been 
closest to who's passed and mm-hmm. you know i've been involved in some some of the other people who i was close to and then also was like involved in their recoveries like those also were a little harder to deal with but um yeah i went through the classic like when someone called me up and told me that they were pretty sure that Bat- brad had passed away in like an accident in mexico you know my first instinct was like you must be wrong like this can't be true you know um, sure and and also i first heard that it was a simul climbing accident as opposed to a simul mm-hmm. repelling accident just to go into like the, some of the weirdness of what your own mind does like i felt like it, if he had died simul climbing then it would sort of like repudiate everything that we had done together like to say that our experience together was like wrong and a mistake um so there was like strangely some solace in it being more attributed to like a fuck up of like not paying attention to you know like a mm-hmm. sub something preventable rather than being like oh brad was doing what he loved and following his dreams and like that's how he died i feel like it was just more like we all kind of knew that brad didn't always keep it tight you know he was like the type to tie in on a single bullet sort of a thing you know or like mm-hmm. if there's one piece between him and the ground and that one piece was like kind of questionable he would still like climb on like focused on doing the thing like on sending you know mm-hmm. so him being in the high risk category i think it's like you know i had thought about it before and that helped a little bit um and then yeah i just think that in some ways like throughout my life like my relationship with death has just been different like i both like I'm very aware of like my own mortality and maybe like the mortality of our world as a whole, (laughs) which I think puts things in different perspective than when you're just thinking about like your own life and death, but you're thinking about like, well, potentially the whole, the the death of the whole world. If we don't like take this moment, this chance that we have to do what we can with it, you know, I think maybe that's like Mm -hmm. a little bit the part of like being born in this age with like the climate crisis and stuff like that is, is you have some, maybe some awareness that like, even if you make all the right decisions, like the, who, who knows if like the planet will be around in the same way, like the, we'll have the same opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess being on SAR and, and dealing with death and seeing, seeing how it's affected other people and other people going through the grieving process. Um, I also just like had, had and have a great community of people that I could rely on. You know, uh, Brad was a huge part of the, Yosemite community and because that was where I lived and worked on the search and rescue team like the rest of the SAR team knew Brad and so to get to come together with those people throughout our grieving process was really powerful we all went down to like a, one of his little memorials down in LA and I think still there's a like our community is waiting for like the the life celebration party that we're supposed to do on the top of El Cap for Brad because it to, mm-hmm. to us it didn't feel right to be celebrating his life in a climbing gym even though that's where a lot of people do know him from. They're like, no, we have to go celebrate on top of El Cap. But because, you know, the pandemic and all that stuff, we haven't been able to like find that time to all come together. And then, yeah, like, I don't know. I get sad sometimes. Definitely there was like a point in time where I was with one of my best friends in the world, Mike Bryan's climbing. And I just got sad just being like, I always wondered what it would be like if Brad came to Patagonia because you know he had the potential to accomplish such incredible things down there. You also knew that because he didn't keep things very tight, he would be like one of the most reckless, like danger cases that ever entered the Torrey Valley. But like the things, you know, I think one of the things that helps me put it in really good perspective is that after Brad passed and seeing the response from the community made me realize that Brad impacted this world in his short time 
in like a more substantial way than I feel like a lot of people get the chance to in their whole life. You know, I, I meet right. people who knew Brad or just met Brad or was inspired by him that just talk so highly of, of what his example taught them. And I feel like that, that continues on. And in some ways that like helps me have like a little bit less like fear of, you know, like what my own passing would be like, because I, I, I know that up to this point, like I've lived in a way where I've been able to give back and, and put a lot of positive energy into people's lives and, you know, even save other people's lives, you know, who might keep going on for a while and do, do other great things. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there for sure about, about Brad's passing, but I think he lived a beautiful life and, uh, and I think that like his spirit continues on and that's all we can kind of do with people that pass is like continue to carry their spirit, take what we remember as the best parts of them and most like powerful parts of their energy and like try to live in a way that does that respect, you know? In silly ways, like literally when I hangboard, I think about like, well, Brad wouldn't let go yet, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> uh, but in, yeah. in other more meaningful ways, like one of the things that was really great about Brad is, is Brad was never the definition of cool, but because of his self-assuredness and the way that he lived and, and interacted and, and treated other people, he was, he was the coolest for as goofy as he was. He was cool in that way that let us all be a little bit more ourselves and our own goofy selves. Mm -hmm. And to realize that like, that's like the coolest person we can be is ourselves, you know? Yeah. That was like a huge thing I learned from Brad that I don't know. I want to like keep taking forward. you know. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a life lesson that'll last till you, you also pass from the planet. So yeah, yeah hats off to Brad. That's a really nice tribute actually. Yeah, so 2020, you know, you just talked about how it messed up a lot of things, you know, the the sort of celebration of life service or party for for Brad. I mean, so many different things. Um although climbing, you know, for a lot of people after the initial shutdown other than the international travel kind of um for a lot of folks, you know, it it went on. Uh, yeah. but but we're uh, we're you know, we're uh, getting out of the tunnel, I think. Yeah. I feel like uh there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel in a few months, if things are keep going the way they're going. Yeah, so how do you together. feel about this year? What? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep well, it together a little while longer. actively. <laughs> yeah, I know there's people actively trying not to keep it together, but we won't get into that. But um, yeah, I mean, what, what's uh, what, what, what do you feel about the, the new year? How, how you, how you uh, sort of, you know, psych wise and spirit wise rolling into 2021 right now? Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely as everybody is, I think really looking forward to the end of the pandemic. I like to spend a lot of time alone. So some of that, that introversion and like social distancing stuff is, is good and has worked out for me, but I'm the kind of person that when I do come out of the woods, I really do want to spend time with people. And, you know, I, I want to be able to meet strangers in the boulder fields and, and get excited and like help like spot them when they're, you know, they, they're about to take a fall or whatever. And, and yeah, it's, it's like a kind of meeting, miss meeting new people and being able to engage and, and share things. I think sharing is really nice and important and something that we don't get to do. Like you can't just like share a drink or, uh, I know that like a lot of live events have been canceled. It was, it was sort of like a, I don't know. I was looking forward to giving some more talks on stages and stuff and, and try to like get out and interact with the world a little bit more, try to participate some. And, and then, uh, I feel like the pandemic gave me this easy out to like reclude again. And yeah, <laughs> looking, looking forward to get back, getting back out with the people. Um, 
I'll be working a lot this summer. And so in a pretty remote place for that. And then uh, I'm trying to go back to the Valley and spend some time. And yeah, hopefully with the pandemic easing down, like everybody else will get to come out. And for a lot of the pandemic, honestly, I was like still in Argentina at like the Southern tip of the Mm -hmm. world. Um, So I felt pretty removed from it all. I think I've been really fortunate throughout the pandemic to be in rural places and to still have work. Um, And so I think like in some ways I'm just like, my life's been pretty okay. So I'm looking forward to like how it improves for other people, like those who have really had to socially isolate. Like I imagine that that there'll be so like a lot of healing that'll have to occur after this. And, uh, you know, in some ways maybe that role of like being privileged to like not have to be in the mix of it so much, like means that when we all come out of it, like I'll just help support other people and getting back out and learning to love the outdoors and interact once again. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the one other thing maybe I guess I want to say is, is I'm in this point where I'm like, sort of like at a career shift, you know, moving on from search and rescue. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to dream big and keep imagining. And sometimes I have these like little ideas that don't really seem that well fleshed out, but the more you start to take steps towards them, the clearer they become. And, uh, yeah, so there's just lots of little things that I'm exploring in life that I'm really excited to, to keep exploring. And, um, well, one of those things is jamming, playing music. I've got like a mm-hmm. two other guys that I've been playing music with that are are in the pod, and at some point, and who knows, maybe we'll try to get up on like a little stage, play some gigs, you know, do that sort of thing. Once again, just like it'll be fun to participate and interact and get to share with our fellow fellow humans again. Cool. Well, thanks a lot. This has been epic. Uh, thanks a lot for the time. Um, I'm glad that your agent slash roommate yeah. helped me get this going you're actually in the same quote-unquote studio as she was so, um, <laughs> she had the same wall color. i really <laughs> yes yeah, <same wall. laughs> no she was like in a bedroom oh, okay but anyway same house <laughs> yeah, yeah. but uh but yeah i totally appreciate it um i've been curious about you what your story was you know those little kind of sort of like dispatches from patagonia and obviously that film although you know i'll just say in terms of the film you know, there just wasn't a lot there to, to sort of, uh, I mean, it wasn't about you guys. And, and, um, and I felt like, you yeah. know, you guys, they, they sort of put you in as this role and, um, I wasn't, I'll just say I wasn't that happy with that uh-huh. role. I don't know if you were, but, um, just knowing Brad and stuff and, and, uh, but you know, that it just piqued my interest about like, who is this guy really like that's sitting there and, um, you know, kind of doing some laugh lines in this film and knowing what you had done in Patagonia. I'm like, yeah, this is, there's, this is not like, this is not the sum of who this gentleman right. is. Right. What happened? In so I'm so glad here. we got, what's that? <laughs> what happened in between here? Like what happened before? All yeah, this? exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so I appreciate it. And I know the listeners have been curious as well, um, to find out who Jim Reynolds is. And, um, you've given us a lot here, a lot to think about. And, um, I think we're going to look forward to, to checking you out. You don't have a ton of media out there. Is there any way for anybody to keep up with what you're doing? Um, infrequent posts on Instagram is, is about okay. it. Yeah. But, yeah. but if I do have anything coming up, like I probably will put it out there through, through Instagram okay. or the social media. Yeah. yeah. I'm ramping up a little bit. I'm, I'm still looking forward to sharing more stories, you know, and, cool. and maybe there'll be some more ascents going on out there, but in some ways I'm like, I've got so many little stories in the backpack that are worth like writing about or trying to get to share mm-hmm. on a stage or, or you know, at events and stuff like that, that I don't know, I think I'll be, I'll be around and I'll be appearing more and, and trying to, you know, I'll still be disappearing into the woods for months on end, but then cool. uh, I'll be around. 
<laughs> that's right. No, when you just pay it out little by little, that's what keeps everybody still. Yeah, so. you don't want to give too don't, much don't yourself overdo all at it. once, you know, and then have people <laughs> expecting that you're, you know, <laughs> you're always going to be right getting on. on stage and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really nice talking to you. Yeah, we'll maybe chat down the line again sometime. Yeah, I would be, I'd be awesome. And, and hopefully we'll run into each other in person, you know, speaking of not having a pandemic, uh, maybe I'll be back to doing these face to face, but um, I probably wouldn't have had this opportunity without it. So um, it's worked out well for me. So thanks again, Jim. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening, and thanks to Jim for sitting down and connecting. So many great stories, so much detail. Man, like what he was up to out there in Patagonia, and then that solo of El Cap. Like, did you get it when the whole daisy chain started snapping? I didn't really understand what was going on there, other than it sounded terrifying. And I've thought about that move a lot, actually. That's one of the moves that I think about when I think about Alex Honnold free soloing up there. It's not the hardest thing on the uh, on the route, but it's a hard move right off the ledge there. Also, I mean, can you imagine like even just going on a hike where you thought you were going to be gone for the day, but hell, you're out there. Why not? Just stay out there for like two and a half, three days. Who cares? <laughs> oh, fun stuff. All right, folks, uh, be careful out there yourselves. Set up those margins, those margins for error that uh, Jim talked about everywhere you go climbing. And even if you're free soloing, which the Enormacast officially does not recommend, but if you happen to be, don't forget to check your knot anyway, if you know what I'm saying. And I think you do at this point, 216 episodes in. It's more than just the knot, bro. <laughs> Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering.